Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton COVID cases continue to rise, nearly 50 of those COVID-19 cases being linked to the SpinCo outbreak. The Director of Emergency Center, Paul Johnson, joins us to talk about that. Hamilton will slowly be removing the homeless encampments around the city this week. Human rights lawyer with Ross McBride, Wade Posyamka, joins us to explain what's really going on behind the scenes. And Donald Trump held his first rally since his COVID-19 diagnosis. He decided to defend his record on the pandemic by mocking it. How are people viewing him with just three weeks to go before the election? Well, we'll talk about it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID-19 is, is still dominating just about every aspect of our lives these days. We spent a lot of time last week talking about uh, uh, self-isolating. And, of course, the, uh, the edict come from the, uh, came from the medical officers of health and from the premier, for that matter, uh, and the prime minister. I mean, they were all on the same page basically saying, look, it's a big weekend. I know you want to get together with family, but don't. Just isolate within your own homes because we're trying to, well, you've heard that spread, the, the whole thing before, of course, you know, but knock down the spread do something about that. Uh, We'll get the numbers on that a little bit later on. The numbers so far that we've seen are not good. Uh, There was an outbreak in London, and not just at Western University, but some other new cases there, too, uh, that had uh, a great deal of concern. Uh, Dr. Alex Summers is with the London Middlesex Health Unit, and he says they're going to start tracking this stuff right away. Residents on university campus can be a place where people are living close together. So as a result, when we see transmission that is happening, we need to move very quickly to make sure that people are separating from one another so that that transmission can be halted in its tracks. So some concerns in London. We had talked to the, their medical officer, Health Dr. Chris Mackey, late last week about that, and he uh, ex- expressed some some real concern about whether or not these numbers are going to start to rise. And sadly, they saw some increases in those numbers. Here in Hamilton, uh, it's not a whole lot rosier, to be quite frank about it. The weekend saw Hamilton gain more cases of COVID-19. Uh, nearly 50 of those cases are linked to the SpinCo that we've talked about, of course. That's the uh, place down on James Street North in Hamilton. And uh, that's not the worst scenario. There's some other things that are happening, too. So I wanted to bring Paul Johnson back into the program. Paul, of course, is the Director of Emergency Center uh, dealing with the COVID crisis and the pandemic here for the city of Hamilton. Uh, Paul, hope you had a good weekend. Thanks for joining us today. There we are. Bill? Yeah, now we can hear you. Okay. I think oh, we're good to go. I just wish you a happy belated Thanksgiving. <laughs> I well, had a great okay. weekend. Back at you, back at you. Hope things were well. I know the numbers were smaller uh, for just about everybody these days, but uh, the numbers that, when it comes to the new cases of COVID, Paul, are something that's rather troubling. Maybe, first of all, uh, I want to talk about the SpinCo situation because I know that you've been monitoring that very closely, and then we can talk about some of the broader numbers as well. Uh, and, and I know that the, the new cases, of course, to do with that are rather troubling. I Maybe explain exactly what you've discovered and, and, and what your unit is, is finding. Sure. Well, public health, uh, of course, uh, you know, always involved when we see these cases uh, and in this case had to declare an outbreak uh, at the business, currently looking at 39 uh, people involved with it from and then some secondary pieces that get us to that over 50 number that you're you're talking about. Um, And that secondary spread is, of course, people taking it to their other contacts that they may have in their household or, or others. So, uh, you know, it's concerning, and it is just another reminder of how fast uh, this virus can spread and how it is that we don't have, even if you are fit and mobile, which I assume people going to a spin class are, um, at some level of fitness and obviously very mobile, uh, it, it still isn't an immunity to this virus. And so, again, it's a, it's a reminder of what we've known throughout this uh, so few people have this. We do not have what people call this herd immunity to it. Um, it is a very uh, important time for us to remember the core public health messages about how we stop the peaking of this virus right now. Another 41 cases added to Hamilton yesterday. And Bill, just to put that in context, in terms of broad numbers, we've never seen numbers this this high. There were moments along the way, and you'll remember them well, and in, in May and April, where we had uh, outbreaks, large outbreaks at retirement homes. And those were devastating and, and very uh, tough for us to look at in very high numbers. But in terms of a more broad community number of uh, cases, we've never seen numbers like this. So we are not going through a lower second wave in terms of these overall community cases. Uh, it's actually higher. 
which I, I, was everybody's worst fear, of course, that things were going to get worse. Is this a, a perfect storm of events? And I know that you're still doing some analytics on these numbers, Paul, but you know, we knew that, okay, there's probably going to be a spike once the kids go back to school. I shouldn't say just kids because, I mean, you know, university and college and post-secondary uh, students are going back as well. So there was an anticipation that was something was going to happen like this. But I don't know even at that point that we had anticipated that the numbers were going to be as high as they are now. No, and, and, you know, our schools have fared very well. Our child care centers have fared very well. Uh, what Dr. Richardson and her team continue to find is that this is about our social interactions, uh, what we do uh, in, in terms of our households and our, our, our circles of people that we connect with, and really recognizing right now that this concept of small circles of people uh, it's really blowing apart because of how many people are back to work, the kids that are back at school, uh, people, uh, you know, doing more things in life. So we need to remember that when we're getting together with folks outside of our household, that, um, uh, you know, we need to treat this very much the way that we were treating it early on. And I know people, they call it this, uh, you know, exhaustion of, uh, of COVID or whatever. But if we're going to keep a handle on these numbers going forward and have more of these small rolling waves until we build towards a vaccine or some kind of an immunity strategy. We're going to have to take these measures much more seriously. The other thing we want to avoid is a large-scale shutdown again. Um, you know, I was a guest at the BIA Advisory Committee meeting this morning. It's all the heads of the BIAs in Hamilton, and they're concerned. They're concerned about a second shutdown because businesses can't survive. So, you know, this is really a critical moment for Hamilton, as it is for a number of centers. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that Hamiltonians can do their part, not just for each other, not just for older adults, but also for businesses and everything else that we want to keep moving. I want to get you read on something else, too, because I know there's a lot of concern about, as you say, the spread. And it's not just because of the schools. It's it's uh, everyone else. It's the community at large. And and maybe as a, as a reference point, I'll go back to the Spinco situation. My understanding, Paul, and I know you've your staff had done some investigation, uh, is they were compliant with the provincial regulations. It's not as if they were thumbing their nose and say, we're not going to do this. Distance between machines, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the other stuff. Uh, according to the stories I've seen, uh, they were playing by the rules, and yet they still had this outbreak. And, and I'm, I'm hearing the same sorts of things from places like restaurants and bars that, more, for the most part, are compliant with this. They're doing what the province says, which brings into questions, are the regulations strong enough? Well, and that's certainly something that uh, everybody's looking at right now. And you can see in Toronto and Peel and in Ottawa that they've taken some dramatic steps uh, to, to, to get on top of this again for the next uh, 28 days or so, go through a couple of cycles of infection of this, of this virus and, and try and get a handle on it. Um, we're hoping to avoid that in Hamilton. But you're quite right. You know, we continue to learn. And yes, um, you know, people are complying. When I'm out and about, I see good compliance to it. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, we need to investigate more whether there should be different kinds of restrictions for certain activities is, is one of the things that I assume will come out of, of the investigations. Because if, if it was following a basic set of guidelines and we still had this type of, of stuff happening, will you stop it entirely? Probably not. But uh, these types of outbreaks are very concerning for us. And I think that uh, we're all looking and saying, geez, you know, what are those things we need to put in place that, that allow businesses to operate, but will stop these types of things from happening? Because the knock-on effect, uh, particularly the secondary spread of this, uh, you know, is quite significant. And that's people that can't go to work. And that's uh, people that potentially infect others who may have uh, underlying health issues. And then it gets worse and worse as you go along. So uh, I do think that that's one of the things that Dr. Richardson and certainly medical officers of health across the province are looking at is should there be a different set of guidelines uh, for certain activities. Well, I mean, the spin class is something altogether different. I, I don't spin. I, I've cycled in my life, but not to that degree and not with that intensity. Uh, I don't know that you can spin with a face mask on. I don't know if that's one of the regulations or not. Uh, but, you know, when you're working up a sweat and you're, you're pushing yourself like that and you're perspiring and probably breathing more heavily than you would ordinarily, at least I would if I were doing it, I know that, uh, the chances of spreading are pretty significant in a situation like that, no matter how far apart those machines are, because we know now, uh, something we didn't know nine months ago, that there's an airborne quality to the spread of this virus. And I, I don't know how you protect yourself from that, Paul. Well, and that's and that's just it. And now we're shifting into the colder weather months. We're going, you know, I know that, that teams are looking at 
what does it mean to be indoors? Because it's a very different dynamic. When the weather was nice, we could encourage people to be outside uh, and do all sorts of things outside, which we know reduces the risk substantially. Uh, you know, now we're going to be inside, and it is about, you know, how how small is the space? Uh, you know, what is the volume of air that's moving through it? Can we open windows and keep some of that ventilation going? I've talked a lot about that in restaurants, that even in these colder weather months, the more that doors can be opened, the windows can be opened, or those big sliding doors that are used in the summer can stay open maybe in the winter, the more you get airflow through. And, and this is the challenge of the virus. We're learning about it as we're moving through the the, the, the pandemic and and that means that um, there may be some changes coming i i don't know uh, i'm not on the science end of this but i would expect that there may be some further guidance coming as we know we have to spend more time indoors as we move through november december and into the heart of the winter but to that point we're really at the the behest of the province are we not i mean that's that's their cause that what sort of restrictions are going to be put in place and where i i suppose you could supersede that and say i know you guys only want to do a we're going to do a plus here for our region uh, but at the same token, you just mentioned you had your meeting with the BIA leaders this morning here in the Hamilton area. Uh, nobody wants to go down that road of a shutdown again. And even if you say, okay, I know you used to have 60 people in here. Now these regulations say you can have 40. Maybe it's only going to have to be 20 or 25. Uh, I'd hate to think of the implications that's going to have for business too. So we're, we're kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario here. Uh, we are we are a little bit, uh, but you know the good news is is that for so long Hamilton was in um, a very enviable position in terms of numbers, and if we can figure out how to keep those numbers down a little bit, um, you know we can probably continue on with many of the things that we have. And as you as you see, we have not been on that first wave of of, um, of more restrictive measures for the next 28 days, but. Uh, yeah, the province will make many of those calls for us. Dr. Richardson locally could add some things uh, if she felt uh, that there were sp- some specifics that needed to be followed. Uh, but our goal is to try and get this message out that uh, each of us have a responsibility. We can keep businesses going. We can keep um, activities happening in our community if we follow the right approaches uh, individually. Well, to that point, and my information is anecdotal. I mean, these are conversations I've had with you and Dr. Richardson and, and, and Dr. Mackey, of course. And I know you know Dr. Mackey from his days in Hamilton here. I do, so yes. London Middlesex. He's doing an outstanding job there, but we knew he would. He's a fabulous guy and a great doctor. But what they're all telling me, Paul, is, for instance, the Spinco situation is really an anomaly. That's not really happening with businesses. You're not seeing that. That doesn't seem to be the spot where the, the, these new cases are coming from. And you said it's not even so much from the schools. It's the average citizen. We're, we're socializing with people that we don't usually socialize in larger numbers than we're supposed to, and we're starting to see the negative impact of that. Well, we are, and, and we need to continue to remember that, uh, you, know, two or, you know, a couple of days before you show symptoms, uh, you are uh, very contagious. And uh, so, you know, it's not that case where people are readily welcoming into their home for four hours of a family gathering, a whole bunch of people that are hacking and coughing and sniffling and sneezing. I mean, those are pretty easy ones to say, whoa, I don't think you should come in. But what we're seeing is people forgetting that we may not know. And and uh, uh, that's... <laughs> That's a challenge because when we have people that choose to get together in groups, they sit too close together. We've even heard stories of, you know, sharing food or taking a, a, a tasting drink out of somebody else's glass. All of these things um, are, quite frankly, incredibly silly uh, activities to take, no matter how well you know somebody. Uh, these are the things that spread this virus incredibly quickly, and, and those are the things that we really need to think about. And even so much as maybe when we're indoors with people who we do know well, uh, that we continue to wear masks and, and do those types of things. The protections we need to put in place are um, are there. We know what they are. Uh, you know, we need to follow them with a, a great deal more adherence at the moment because it is those activities that are driving at least partial of the numbers. And then we're seeing, again, some of these outbreaks start to crop up here and there. But, um, you know, it is it is our behavior that's going to continue to either drive these numbers up or help us flatten that curve again. And what's even more sobering, I suppose, about this is you and I just talked about some of the, the numbers that are, are very troubling and very concerning, of course. We don't even have the numbers for Thanksgiving. I mean, the, the impact of what may or may not have happened during Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving rather, we're not going to know that till the end of the month, a 14-day you know, period, and 
then we may yeah. see those numbers and exactly what's going to happen. So as bad as this looks right now, uh, it, it has the potential to get worse, depending on just how we behaved and whether or not we heeded the advice from, from places, people like yourselves and the, and the medical officers of health and others like that as to how we should be compliant in a situation like this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, this week, you know, let's hope we can keep the numbers where they are, maybe see a slight decrease, and then let's hope that we don't, uh, you know, you know, starting a week from now and going through to the two-week period, uh, start to see these rising cases, which could be an indicator, as we do our contact tracing, we'd find out, but could be an indicator of what happened over the Thanksgiving Day weekend, and it could be about gatherings. Uh, it could be about activities that people were out doing. Um, you know, it could be a bunch of those things. So you're absolutely right. All of these numbers are a bit of a lagging indicator of what happened previous to it. So we're trying also to figure out what that looks like so that we can put in place measures now that will help us uh, move forward. And that's why you see these 28-day uh, cycles of restrictions being put into place. And, and absolutely, we're trying to avoid that in Hamilton. But I can tell you, our proximity to uh, Peel region in particular, and then Toronto, um, places us in that area where some of those restrictions may become reality if we can't uh, you know, get on top of this really quickly. Well, and some of the stuff we've learned over the last couple of weeks, I think, is, is noteworthy here about how we should be actually be cognizant about this and, and diligent, really. Uh, as w one of the experts I saw on the, on the uh, TV news in the States, Dr. Gripka, was mentioning that, uh, that we know it's airborne, of course, but even the virus that's you know, in our, on our money or in our newspapers or whatever, he says it can, it can lay there for seven to ten days, whereas the flu virus, if it's on something, lasts about an hour and a half. Uh, so this stuff is it's, it's relentless, and, I mean, we have to be relentless in turn, you know, with it comes to hand-washing and sanitizing and things of that nature. Yeah, we do. Um, however, I would say that that our real vigilance has to be on that contact uh, piece, uh, being in places with people, understanding the risks of, of the place. You know, in perfect environments, we can probably replicate things and say, you know, I've heard the one where, you know, on, on the screen of a cell phone, it can, you know, the virus is still there 28 days later. But the reality is it's very small amounts. Uh, the reality is that's a very tough transmission point for it is what I, I also heard people saying as I, as I read about it this weekend. I think the piece that is so critically important, though, is the stuff that, that where we know there's a much stronger chance it's going to be transmitted, and that is the interactions we have with people. Uh, the droplets, um, where we're interacting with people, how we're interacting with people, what protections they're using, i.e. wearing a mask, and what protections we're using. Also wearing a mask, but keeping our distance, hand washing, not touching our face, all of those things. Those things will drive um, a stronger, uh, you know, flattening of that curve than I think, you know, too much worrying about cleaning every surface and all that. We should do that stuff, high-touch surfaces, making sure we clean our phone regularly, all of that's good good uh, measure as well. But what I'm most concerned about on a daily basis is how people are interacting with each other, Bill. And I think if we can do a stronger job around that, um, that will actually help us uh, more so in our numbers. Absolutely. Paul Johnson, as always, Paul, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. I know more numbers coming up in the next few days, and we'll certainly get your response to that. Thanks for the time today. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Paul Johnson, who is the uh, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to give you an update on what's happening with the encampment situation uh, in Hamilton and London and, and many other cities right across Ontario. Uh, we've had a, 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 well, it's a COVID phenomenon, of course, the number of people that are basically living in tents in certain parts of the city right now because of a homelessness situation, because of unemployment, because of the ravages of uh, COVID-19. And as we've talked about on the program before, uh, COVID didn't necessarily cause all of this. What it did is exacerbated some people, uh, situations that were already putting people in rather precarious situations. Uh, a judge has lifted the injunction against uh, the, the situation that was going on here in Hamilton between Hamilton City Council, the city of Hamilton, that is, and a number of those encampments. And uh, there are a number of people that were working with uh, those people, the the tent and campus, uh, including Ham Smart, Keeping Six, uh, Cheryl Crow, and Nadine Wilson, a community clinic, of course, here in Hamilton. And you've heard many of them on the program before. Uh, city Council seems to think they've got this thing resolved and they have a plan. Uh, but there were some, well, some people consider rather disparaging comments made by some of the city councillors uh, and maybe some misunderstandings about exactly why this is happening in the first place. So I wanted to bring uh, Wade Posyumka back in. Wade, he's a partner with Ross and McBride uh, for Hamilton here, in ha law firm here in Hamilton, uh, who represents uh, a number of the partners that, that were involved in this over the last little while. Uh, Wade, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us on the program again today. 
Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Is this is this over as far as you're concerned? I hope so. Um, I, I hope so, and I, I think whether it, it's over or not will will come to be seen in the next week or two as uh, the city moves to um, help transition people out of encampment to who aren't defined under the high acuity category. But, you know, Bill, through this process, my bigger concern is what we're hearing after the agreement was reached by some of the city councillors, Chad Collins, uh, Jason Farr, he was on your show last week, I heard his mm-hmm. comments. Um, so if I can, I want to go back for, for a second, and I want to just look at how this injunction came to be on July 30th. Sure. So my clients were involved in a discussion with the city of Hamilton well before the injunction came into effect. Tuesday, July 28th, we get a call from city staff, my clients do, and they tell them there's some residents in encampments who will be forcibly removed on Friday. It gives us a few days. So from our perspective, we had to take steps to stop this and work with the city to prevent the inevitable, inevitable harm that would occur from that decision. And, Bill, remember, by this point, encampments had already been dismantled previously just to pop up again elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that day, we get notice from city staff. I reach out to Jason Farr. I emailed him at 3.55 p.m. on that Tuesday, and I marked it urgent. I didn't hear back from him. I left him a voice message, and I emailed him again at 5.56 p.m. I gave him my home number. I said, call me anytime this tonight. It's important that we talk. I didn't hear back from him again. In fact, I've never heard from Jason Farr since this has happened. So he talks about not being able to speak because of litigation on your show, but this is well before the injunction was sought. And frankly, had he have picked up the phone, this injunction could have been prevented. Now, we did, con- we did connect to some city staff, Bill, at that time. But Paul Johnson, as I understand, was on vacation. Nicole Audie, the city solicitor, was on vacation. So Wednesday, we have no commitment that they're going to uh, not remove people who have nowhere else to go from encampment. So we bring the injunction. We get before the court on the Thursday, and the court grants it. So... You know, I, I take issue with some of the comments that are coming from Councillor Farr and Councillor Collins. So when he expresses concern for those living around the encampment areas, you'd think that that level of concern would have caused him to pick up the telephone to address this issue with us when I reached out to him two days before we obtained that injunction. And so what I say to your listeners is if you're concerned with what transpired with the injunction, regardless of what side of the issue you're on, whether you thought they should have been dismantled, whether you agreed that we should have taken some steps to protect some of the, the individuals in the encampments to make sure they had options available. All of this could have been avoided had Jason Farr picked up that phone and engaged with a group of concerned frontline physicians and harm reduction activists, and he simply didn't. And then, Bill, after the injunction was granted, you saw us try to engage with the city. I wrote an op-ed piece on this in The Spectator mm-hmm. uh, about Jason Farr, and still nothing. And it continued, and it went on and on and on. And I think what your listeners may not know is that the ex parte injunction we brought was only supposed to be for a period of 10 days. And remember, we brought it on July 30th. We obtained it on July 30th. Now, the city, on consent, so the city agreed that this application wasn't to be, or that the injunction motion wasn't to be heard till October 20th, 2020. So I, I just think, you know, it's time to set the record straight on what actually happened here, because what I, what I see is a lot of political spinning. And frankly, this has been a really disappointing pro- process with city council. Um, getting to this point, and, and this could have been avoided. And I think it's time that, that you know, we don't give half statements that don't provide a full glimpse. We actually talk about what really happened. Well, because we're getting mixed messages, and you're right. I mean, I, I got the same response from a number of people when we reached out uh, over those that period of time that you've just referenced, uh, trying to get them to comment, and they say, well, we can't because it's before the courts, uh, which is a fallback position, I guess, for an awful lot of stuff. That, uh, But that doesn't mean there can't be some discussion about this, uh, and it doesn't mean there shouldn't have been discussion between you and some of the parties involved in this. But what bothered me about this, Wade, and I talked to you about this the last time you were on the show, before this whole thing, I think it was just around the time the injunction was agreed to be lifted, uh, is the characterization by some of the people on city council, our, our representatives who are representing those people in the tents as well as you and me and the surrounding businesses. You, you're supposed to represent all the people, not just some of the people. Uh, that the, the characterization was that this whole thing was something that was conjured up by a bunch of activists just to try to stir the pot, uh, which I took exception to. I'm, I, I mean, this is a, a terrible situation. Uh, there must be an awful lot of activists around if that's what they're doing, because there are encampments like this in just about every community, every large community in the province. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, listen, if you go back and you look at the media reports before the injunction was granted, you see Councillor Farr and other councillors saying the t- same type of stuff. You know, we're concerned for the safety of these encampments are growing. But, Bill, it's easier to point the finger and say, well, look, it's not our fault. It's not the city's fault. It's, it's this group of activists, or it's the provincial government, or it's the federal government, or somebody else. It's not us. 
that helps get votes, right? So, I mean, I understand the position they're taking. And, you know, Bill, I, I don't know if you noticed this. He said it twice on your show, and he said it in council a number of times. He says, downtown law firm Ross and McBride, uh, Jason Farr's newest catchphrase. But he fails to mention that I was co-counsel with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. It seems to me that, you know, Jason and other counselors are trying to cast blame in the eyes of their constituents on my clients and Ross and McBride for what happened. But I, I, I want to say here that my clients are residents in the encampment who had few options. They're frontline physicians working with those residents. They're harm reduction activists. I was doing this work pro bono, Bill, um, to help a very vulnerable sector of our population. None of us benefited personally from any of this work. In fact, we devoted hundreds of hours worth of our time to this cause to help prevent harm to people who needed our help. So for elected representatives to criticize us, for Councillor Collins to suggest this was political, it's really disheartening to see that. And in Jason Farr's case, especially when he didn't pick up the phone, how many tax dollars could have been saved? Had he have engaged with a very concerned group of citizens? And really, Bill, I honestly expected that City Council would have been our partner in working towards a solution that recognized the dire situation some of these residents found themselves in. And uh, at least in the early days of, of this process, uh, that didn't happen. But, you know, to cast blame on, on activists or to, to kind of create a group that's not City Council and, 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 you know, cast aspersions on them, I think it's completely inappropriate. You know, activist to me has always been a positive thing. It wasn't a... Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that. And I know some people go, so come on, you're splitting hairs. No, I'm not. Uh, active, Martin Luther King Jr. was an activist. People that advocate on behalf of people that don't have a voice, that are are, are, are getting a raw deal, are, are labeled as activists. That's not a bad thing, uh, to be an activist. Uh, you know, and, and I think what they're trying to do is conflate the word a- activist with anarchist. Uh, which I'm, I'm, that's an assumption on my part, but I'm getting the sense that they're trying to make that one and the same, and it's certainly not. Uh, I mean, the people I've had on this program, yourself included, but, but others too, like Cheryl and E.D. Wilson and others from the Hamilton Community Clinic, by the way, are being activists on behalf of these people that are in a dire circumstance. Uh, is, that, is that a crime now? Is that a bad thing to, to advocate for people that need help? No, I certainly don't think so. I hope so not. I think this, you know, this is part of a, a broader, you know, issue. I mean, we're seeing it with kind of what happened with Cameron Crouch and the Integrity Commission. I know you talked about that on a, a previous show, yeah. maybe a couple times. But, you know, up until this summer, I haven't had much involvement with City Council. They're kind of on the periphery for me. I do my legal work and I, you know, I never really watched their GIC meetings or their council meetings. But since this summer, I've been watching pretty carefully. And I've really become disappointed in what I see because there's a core group, group of councillors there who, from my perspective, have become insular, insular and resistant to community feedback. So they call these citizens activists, and, you know, that's a bad word. So it's someone we don't have to listen to, rather than listening to the insight and expertise that might well benefit the councillors. So I think that when that happens, when council members shut down in this way, and they're resistant to that criticism and insight, it's time for a change in the composition of city council. Well, and of course, the public will have an opportunity to do that in the next election. But I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of that characterization. Uh, you know, I mean, people people that that work on behalf of a cause uh, are to be congratulated. Now, if if they get out of hand, or if they're lawbreakers, or whatever the case might be, or they go out within the bounds of, of of what they should be doing, okay, let's have that discussion. But I didn't get the sense that any of that was happening. And and to your point, and I, I hate to draw parallels from one city to another, but I got the sense, and and I wasn't as intimately involved in the Toronto situation as what we saw here in Hamilton, Wade. But I saw, uh, from the coverage I saw, Mayor Tory in Toronto working with these groups to try to find a solution, as opposed to simply saying, let's get them out of sight. And, and, and that seemed to be, to me, to a much better approach. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, that's what I expected would happen here in Hamilton as well. Um, and listen, Bill, listen, you know, I know, Jason knows, I think we all agree on this. It, it, this isn't entirely on the municipality, right? There's other levels of government. Oh, sure there are. There's not enough affordable housing. We all understand that. But just to point to that and say, you know, we find ourselves in this situation because there's not enough funding. Well, no, that, that's not the case here. The reason we went after the city is because the city has bylaws and how they enforce those bylaws matters, right? So we can all agree that there's been other failings that have happened out there and there's not enough affordable housing and people find themselves in, in a dire situation. But then enforce your, your bylaws in a way that recognize that dire situation these people find them in, not something that's going to cause more harm, right? So, you know, I, while we all agree on that, for me, it's not a pivot point for the city councillors to suggest that there were, there were other, you know, levels of, of, of failure here. It's you have a responsibility in enforcing your bylaws to do that in a way 
that shows discretion and compassion not to make things worse for people who are already in a tough situation. That battle has been going on since at least the mid-1990s, uh, you know, when the, the federal government of that day decided to, to basically get out of the affordable housing business. They were trying to cut costs. I mean, and we all know what's going on, and the province did the same sort of thing. Uh, they're all talking the talk right now, and but that's not going to fix it today. Uh, you know, that's that's great. You know, there's going to be a budget come out, and, and maybe they're going to allocate some money for it. They've talked about that for the last two or three years. But it's not solving what's happening downtown right now in Toronto or Hamilton and Windsor and London and other places like that. That it, that is is in the that's in the arena of the city councils of those communities, and they may not like it. Uh, you know, they may say, "Well, we didn't cause it." Well, probably not. But you know what? You wear it because it's happening in your town, and you've got to find an immediate solution. Maybe not a long-term solution, but at least something right now. Uh, instead of getting their backs up and making what I thought of some unfair characterizations of not just the people that were in those encampments, but the people that were trying to represent them. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's right. I mean, we could have worked together and, you know, rather than passing the buck and, and pointing to these failures of provincial and federal governments, they could have, you know, looked right at the outset with how do we help these people? How do we work with these activists to help these people to, to not cause harm and to you know address our goals as a city. I understand there's zoning and planning issues. I get all of that. But there's also just human decency, and there's not causing further harm. And, Bill, there was guidance for them. It wasn't like there weren't short-term guidance. The Center for Disease Control came out with a guideline that said that unless individual housing units are available, don't clear the encampments during the community spread of COVID-19. The United Nations Special Rapporteur wrote a report on this. And one of those was do not clear the encampments during an outbreak. It was in, in, in the principle. So rather than take that, that guidance from, you know, expert bodies and work with the experts in your community, the frontline doctors, there was a whole lot of resistance. And, uh, you know, it led to this injunction, and this injunction was dragged on for a long time. And it wasn't our goal to have it. Our goal was to work with them. That has been our goal all along. And it continues to be our goal today. So where do you go from here? I mean, I, I know the city has been working diligently. Uh, uh, the branch of Paul Johnson you just made, who's now the director of emergency center, as well as other responsibilities, uh, is back. And, and Paul, of course, as you know, Wade, has a background in, in, in working with, with challenged uh, individuals and challenged groups in the cement and community, as well as trying to find affordable housing. He did some outstanding work before he joined the city in that regard. So he, I, he knows what he's talking. I get that. Uh, but it's going to take a concerted effort. It's going to take the support of council to move forward on this. And, and I know their response is going to be, well, we've dedicated a lot of money, uh, you know, to affordable housing and to fixing up affordable housing. And yeah, they have. Uh, but that doesn't help these people right now, uh, right? And, 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 you know, I, I would think that their public health has to be the focus right now of the discussion. How do we fix this? How do we move these people out of here, but do it in a way that's going to be safe for everybody? Yeah, and I, I think Paul Johnson has the tools to do that. I, I have a lot of respect for Paul Johnson, but the problem I see, Bill, is you know Paul Johnson will say one thing, and then you'll hear you'll hear kind of different messages coming from the city councillors. And, and, and a key example of this is Jason told you on the show last week, Councillor Farr told you that there are spaces available and there will be moving forward. And he said shelter spaces mostly for men, hotel rooms for females and families. Now we disagree with the females, uh, the room for females. We've seen a lot and heard a lot on the street that there are simply not always uh, shelter spaces available um, for uh, females in particular. But having said that, that's not the real issue. So saying we have spaces available, that's one aspect of this, this equation. The other aspect is making sure that you have the community support in those spaces that will allow people to successfully transition there and stay there. And so, you know, I, I heard a lot of talk about spaces, but to me, that's a talking point. And I know the city understands this because Paul Johnson said in the media, the amount of fully supportive housing in this community does not meet the demand that's there. And then he talked about people staying in the hotels. And he said, the amount of supporting housing we need in this community simply isn't there. The supports are what make those situations viable. The supports. So if you want to talk about options for people moving forward, you better make sure you have spaces and supports. And from my perspective, you know, Jason doesn't touch on the support aspect of this because it's not there. So while there may be spaces, there still aren't options for certain people. Now, every indication that I have so far, uh, you know, for the last week or so, is that the city's going to treat the, uh, approach this cautiously. They're going to approach it softly, and they're going to try to do this in a way that doesn't cause harm. And we know that those high-acuity individuals will remain in encampments, not the large encampments that we've seen, but smaller encampments, captain-sized. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I have hope that from this point forward, 
you know, we can maybe drop the talking points and, and the half phrases that don't paint the whole picture. And we can actually focus on helping people, making sure that we have the support in place to do that. And actually understanding what our agreement is. On, on your show last week, Jason Farr uh, also said um, that our outreach workers, so the appellants, as he called them, I mean, we weren't appellants, but you can call us that. So Dr. Jill, Lisa, we're required daily to work with those who have high acuity. Well, no, we're not. That's not part of the agreement. So I think the first step is understanding what the agreement is. Yeah, well, and then yeah. I think it's dropping the catchphrases in the public media fight and focusing on actually helping the people in encampments. And we'll be at the table for that, Bill. That's what we've committed to do in the past. It's what we're committed to do moving forward. It's what my clients have the expertise to do. So we're not required to do that, but we're going to do it. And we're going to do it voluntarily to try to help people and prevent harm. Wait, i got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. I, I guess to answer my own question at the beginning of our conversation, it's not over yet. Uh, there's still a lot of work yet to do, and we'll talk about more of this again, I'm, I'm sure, in the weeks and, and days ahead for that matter, too. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. What, Wade Posey-Amp, of course, is a partner in Ross McBride. Yes, working pro bono to try to alleviate this situation downtown. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Three weeks today, the presidential election will take place. Uh, the Well, depending on which poll you're going to read, Joe Biden seems to be up by at least 10 points in some of them, and not quite so much. In the battleground states, uh, uh, pulling away in some very tight in others that uh, they never thought the Democrats were going to have a shot at. Yet, notwithstanding those numbers, uh, Donald Trump was back at the campaign trail yesterday and uh, feeling pretty good about himself. One thing with me, the nice part, I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. Oh, there you go. Uh, vintage Trump, Donald Trump, I suppose. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Reggie Giacchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News in Washington, D.C. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. i got to ask you right up front. I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts about the campaign itself. Uh, a story that uh, I don't know had any attribution that suggested that when Trump did his little thing at uh, the White House a couple of days ago, where he was up on the, the balcony once again, he had actually entertained the idea of opening a shirt and having a Superman T-shirt underneath. Have you heard that story? I won't lie. That story I haven't heard, but it might have slipped by because I, uh, I unplugged over the long weekend. Uh, but given the fact that, that the president was really trying to kind of market this as a triumphant comeback, uh, it's something that we could potentially see the, the campaign having tried to uh, talk the president into doing. Uh, by the way, yeah, for our listeners' sake, I think this past weekend was the first time in about five months you've taken a day off. So I mean, uh, this this thing has just consumed you and everybody else, and we appreciate you uh, with the great reporting that you've done on this, Reggie. Let, let's talk a little bit about what happened in Florida yesterday. He's uh, now been told uh, from his personal physician, we're told that he actually has pot tested negative twice. Uh, but even then, some of the experts are questioning the validity of those tests. Yeah, and that's because the test that the president uh, was administered to get that negative is not a test that is typically used to determine a negative result in the general public. There are questions as to uh, what the president may have tested it negative for because uh, the information wasn't put forth. It was simply just some words that were written by the, uh, by the White House physician. So it does call into question whether or not the president is actually and truly COVID-free if he is potentially still shedding the virus. We do know that the president did go out and say that he was uh, virtually immune after having caught the virus, simply not backed by science. So again, we have the president downplaying the severity of a virus that he contracted just 10 or 11 days ago. Yeah, and spent uh, four days in Walter Reed Hospital. We're told that he had oxygen at least twice during that period of time, too. But uh, that, that that's in the rearview mirror. He doesn't want to talk about that, does he? He doesn't want to talk about it, and it's because there is a kind of sharp reality that's hitting the president right now, that there are three weeks to the day until the election. He is trailing Joe Biden by, you know, as few as 10 points to some polls that are out today showing that Biden could be up by as much as 17 points. There's very little time to try and turn around any of these uh, undecideds that are left in the country, even though there's somewhere between 9 and 12 percent. But also the fact that, you know, it realistically is zero days to Election Day because Early voting is underway in 47 states plus the District of Columbia. Uh, so the president is quickly running out of time. He's trying to make good for what he missed while also trying to kind of pray for a miracle, given the fact that there's just 21 days left. 
Yeah, Georgia and a couple of the other states actually started their their voting as well. Are, are you surprised by the numbers, Reggie? I mean, uh, there's there's been an awful lot of talk about voter suppression. Obviously, we know what the kerfuffle with uh, with uh, the the post office and taking bo- boxes away for people that wanted to to move towards mo- uh, the mail-in ballots because of the COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, yet, people, notwithstanding all of these aggravations uh, that's, uh, and the roadblocks, some people seem to be throwing in the way, are lining up for hours to vote. Yeah, and look, there is a there is uh, kind of a couple of things at play here right now. There is the chance for voter suppression still. I mean, we do have 21 days left uh, before the election. There are days and days of early voting and advanced ballots that are going to be in place. So this is something that could potentially play into uh, the story as we go down the road. Uh, the second part of the story with all these long lines that we're seeing is part and parcel to kind of a, a failure to advance the U.S. voting system into the modern century uh, by having some kind of federal oversight. It's still done at the very local level in a lot of these states, uh, which equates to why we see some of these long lines, but also the fact that uh, enthusiasm is just up across the country. The sheer number of ballots that have been cast in advance uh, is far exceeding what we saw in 2016, which shows that regardless of what your political stripe is, there is an eagerness to be able, uh, to be out there casting a ballot. Uh, latest numbers show that roughly 10 million early ballots have already been cast. And in states like Florida, the number is roughly 1 million uh, early ballots already cast, already 20% higher than what it was in 2016. But also of that number, 60% of them are seniors, which is the, the kind of, you know, coveted demographic that both men are going after right now. So there is just a lot of enthusiasm to get out there and potentially vote safely. What do you see happening, Reggie? What are you hearing about that? Because I know a lot of pundits are equating the numbers, and as you say, the increased numbers and the increased interest, uh, back to 2008, which uh, was, the, of course, the Barack Obama was elected. But that was usually attributed to the fact that there seemed to be an Obama wave. There was a, uh, the audacity of hope. There was a, you know, time for that change to happen. Uh, I don't know that Joe Biden's attracting that kind of, uh, of movement right now, but they're, they're there nonetheless. Is it, is it because they want to get rid of the, the, the guy that's in there now, or are they really feeling it's time for the Democrats to take over again i think that you know it may be kind of a a split 50 50 on both of those but i do think uh based on what we're seeing right now with numbers that COVID 19 really and truly is playing into the significant number of ballots that we're seeing cast right now across all states but no uh, notably across states where seniors are one of the leading populations uh, but also people of color are a uh, one of the leading populations. Uh, and there's a fear that if you're not casting your ballot early, if you're in line on November 3rd, that A, you could be kind of jammed in there with a lot of people, uh, potentially making it unsafe. But this kind of, uh, uh, you know, suppression by the president to kind of stop mail-in balloting and say that it's going to be rigged against him if uh, all of these early ballots are cast and they tend to be strongly Democratic, uh, that is causing kind of a fear in voters to say, look, maybe I'm not going to go cast my ballot early, but I'm going to go stand in line because I want to ensure that my ballot is cast here. And I, I do think that COVID uh, is playing into this enthusiasm to get out and vote solely as a potential referendum on how President Trump has handled this situation this year. Reggie, commercials and, and, and you know, the, the, the time buys on radio and television down there don't necessarily dictate who's going to win the election. Uh, but Biden is outspending Trump uh, in some cases, in some jurisdictions, by almost two to one. We've also heard stories that, uh, that some of the Trump campaign support and some of the commercials that were scheduled for some of those Midwestern states have been pulled now. Uh, is, are they waving a white flag here or is this just a readjustment? Well, I think that there's a combination of things that are happening. You're seeing the president pull out of states that he won handily back in 2016, that he flipped red from what were reliably blue states. Uh, But he understands that he's kind of up against uh, a kind of a Democratic wall led by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in these states. He is down significantly, and it would be difficult for him to be able to kind of swing around and kind of shore up whatever is left of that base. So he's now uh, left to take the money out of those states. Uh, and put it into states that he typically shouldn't have to be fighting in right now. Something like North Carolina, something like Florida, something like Texas, and something like Iowa. These are all fairly reliably red states, uh, and the president is not doing well in any of them. Texas, the president's only up by one. It really is a toss-up right now in Florida and North Carolina. But the fact that Iowa is now in flux as well, with President Trump possibly still kind of holding a very minor, small-digit lead, Uh, He needs to put the money into the states where he can try to draw out as much of his base as he can. uh, And he simply can't do that in these Midwestern states and in through the Great Plains where where he's starting to trail. Uh, So the money's being spent where it needs to be spent now. 
Reggie, have the Democrats learned a lesson from four years ago? I mean, the story we heard in hindsight now is that just around this time, with about three weeks to go, uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign looked at places like Michigan and uh, Wisconsin and, to a certain extent, Pennsylvania, said that we got their, their Democrat. They've always been Democrat. We got those locked up. And she didn't campaign. In, actually, in two of the states, she didn't campaign at all in the last three weeks. Uh, Trump took all three of those. Are, are, are they going to put the pedal to the metal here to make sure that they finish strong? strongly i think that there i think lessons have been learned uh, kind of across the board when it comes to how things worked in 2016 number one never count out a state that you've won once before solely because we can see what happens if you skip it out the electorate may simply not come out behind you uh they may not vote for the other person but it simply takes away votes that you are relying on to win number two is never look at the polls and think that everything is going to be okay again we saw what happened in 2016 and despite the fact that there is a comfortable lead right now for joe biden uh they're still playing it safe they understand that any mess up between now and three weeks from now could bring the needle backwards and while not giving it to donald trump again losing votes where you need them can be a make or break situation here uh and i think number three is the democrats are taking a current situation right now and using it to the to their advantage no matter how dire the situation is and that is with COVID 19 you're seeing the biden campaign take it incredibly seriously not holding big rallies holding uh, uh, kind of smaller venues and talking directly to the American people, they're trying to make an impact that says, you know, no matter what your political stripe is, we understand the kind of pain that you're going through while President Trump holds these massive rallies and potentially puts people throughout the state at risk, even if they weren't in those rallies, because we know how this uh, virus spreads. There's a lot of stuff that was learned from 2016, and Democrats are simply trying to play it by the book to say, we didn't do it then, we're doing it now. Let's uh, talk about, I know you're tracking this today for your reporting later on today on, on Global National. Trump Supreme Court pick Amy uh, Coney Barrett, of course, is before the Senate committee. Uh, this morning, of course, she refused to commit that she would uh, back away from Roe versus Wade, uh, which means if you don't make that commit, means you're probably going to attack it. And that seems to be the consensus. And, of course, before that is the Affordable Care Act, which is going to be before uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, there's not much the Democrats can do to block this right now because they simply don't have the votes. But it seems to be, nonetheless, Reggie, uh, the incentive for an awful lot of Democratic supporters to go out there uh, and, and, and send a message, I guess, to the Republicans about going ahead with this, meaning the Supreme Court uh, appointment here, as opposed to dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and the relief packages. Yeah, I mean, look, Democrats are playing their cards to their advantage, despite the fact that they don't hold any kind of Trump card or majority uh, in, in the Senate right now. Uh, and they're trying to say, look, we understand that we're kind of up a creek. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do to stop this Supreme Court nomination from moving forward. And we'll likely end up seeing uh, Judge Barrett become Justice Barrett sometime before the end of the year. So Democrats are using this as a message to send out to their base to say we need to get out and vote. Because, look, a, a piece of legislation can wind up before the Supreme Court and it potentially, you know, gets it, it gets changed, it gets overturned, it gets rewritten. And that changes the law of the land across the United States. Democrats are going to say, look, if we can overtake the Senate right now, which looks like it could be in their favor, somewhere between flipping two and seven seats, uh, they could say, look, we can keep the House. We could build in the Senate. We could have a Democratic president. So if things get overturned, we have the power to act uh, enact new legislation across the country and be able to kind of uh, build up and shore up those uh, earlier decisions that are now being rewritten. That is the kind of message that Democrats are trying to send out. Well, they understand uh, that they can't do anything and try to get that message out. They're saying, look, this is a quote unquote stolen Supreme Court nomination uh, that we're not getting. So let's work to build on the legislative victories that won't end up before the court because they'll simply be rewritten uh, with majority Democrats. Uh, rather controversial commercial that was released on behalf of the Trump campaign uh, just this week, of course, uh, Reggie, uh, featuring, among uh, uh, among other people, surprisingly, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, making a claim. If, I mean, Fauci, of course, claims this was taken out of context. Basically, I th I'll paraphrase it, that I, I don't know of anybody who could have done more to try to stop this, this pandemic. Uh, they're putting it in the context of he's praising Donald Trump. Fauci apparently is irate about this because that's not who he was talking to. He said it's been taken out of context. Uh, how's that playing in the Beltway right now? Well, look, Dr. Fauci is, 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 is furious over it, and that's because he said that not only were his words used without his permission, they were taken out of context, but that he also doesn't throw his kind of uh, clout behind any political party, no matter who the nominee is. Uh, so he, he's angry at the fact that he's being used by the Republicans to try and back up uh, the president to, you know, potentially undercut the, the criticism that President Trump has received over the last seven months. Uh, it has once again kind of 
created uh, a bit of a rift between the Trump administration and science because they're trying to use science now again to their own advantage without actually looking at what the realities of what was said by this kind of leading scientist uh, in the United States is. But it has kind of reignited this battle between President Trump and the, the, you know, the leading members of his coronavirus task force, notably Dr. Fauci, where the president is again going after him uh, on Twitter and making fun of his first pitch uh, at the ball game earlier this year. This, this really has been a spar between the two of them, uh, but it doesn't sit well with President Trump uh, uh, across the country. And this is simply because there are polls out there that show that the majority of Americans do not trust President Trump when it comes to anything to do with coronavirus, and they have uh, significant amounts of trust in Dr. Fauci, and this could be doing more to push away key demographics uh, that the president is trying to lure in, like the elderly and like suburban women who will listen to what Dr. Fauci has to say. Three weeks to go, Reggie, the uh, finish line in sight. Uh, a lot of Republicans I'm hearing are squirming a little bit because of uh, the fact that Trump has not made up any ground here. Uh, Mitch McConnell, even the Senate Majority Leader, said that the Democrats are on fire. Those are his words. Uh, heading into the last three weeks of this campaign. Uh, Lindsey Graham apparently is in a dead heat uh, with his Democratic uh, challenger right now, too. Are there some uneasy folks down there in, on Capitol Hill? There are uneasy folks, and, and that kind of, you know, the Democrats are on fire, and it's solely because Republicans have had to spend the last, not just seven months under COVID-19, but the last four years, putting out fires that were created by the president and by the president's team, and it really has, uh, uh, you know, taken away where the Republicans were standing just a couple of years ago when they were holding the majority in both legislative chambers and in the presidency, uh, this is now problematic for them. The president has eroded some of that support that, that they've been using to hold themselves up, and they understand now that Democrats have kind of slipped in there, and they're what's propping things up now, and they're the ones who are uh, gaining uh, the momentum in this election campaign. Uh, and, and, you know, th this is simply, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a doing of the Republicans' own administration, uh, uh, legislative actions over the last four years. Because, look, as we've been so focused on COVID-19 for the last seven months, there are things to do with health care. There are things to do with immigration and child separation that are still sitting with Americans uh, that aren't being discussed anymore. And that is what has led to some of this erosion in the Republican Party over the last four years. Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and, of course, correspondent down in Washington. Uh, Reggie, we'll be watching for your updates on this on the Supreme Court hearing and, of course, what's going on in the White House on a Global National over the next couple of days. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.